Lord, you are the strength of our, the source of our strength. You're the strength of our lives. You are our great present help at all times, including times of trouble. You are our great high priest who has gone into the heavenly places and there sits making intercession for us. You've been tempted in every way as we have, yet you are without sin. You took on flesh so that you might identify with us and represent us before God. And your appeal for our blessing will surely be heard. We thank you, King Jesus, for being all that we need. And we offer to you this morning our total praise. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, if you're here and you need a Bible, let me invite you just to sort of raise your hands wherever you're seated. Seated? Seated's a new word. Seated. <laughs> and uh, the ushers will bring your Bible. Uh, keep your hands high. There's one up front here, Christella, sister here. Uh, if you are uh, without a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Please take this Bible and enjoy it the way we enjoy it. We, we are building our lives on it. it it's been changing our lives. It, it has never failed us, and we are confident that it would be the same for you. Uh, if you would seek God in his word and trust his word, you'll find him speaking to you and guiding you because that's how he speaks to and guides us. And so um, that's our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. And we pray that uh, you would delight in it the way that we do. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ezra chapter 4. We're continuing our series, our study in this book, this Old Testament book of history um, that um, chronicles the, the life of Israel when they are leaving Babylonian captivity as exiles and coming back into the land of Israel with special permission from King Cyrus to rebuild the temple and to thereby start worship again of God in Jerusalem. We've called this message the hand of God or this series the hand of God and it's because as we go through this book, we're going to see that actually all that is happening in the life of Israel, particularly their deliverance, is attributed to the hand of God, the way God works in the world. Everybody have Ezra? You there? Maybe the main point of Ezra chapter 4 could be put this way. That simply ending exiled is not the same as ending oppression. That simply ending exile does not do away with hostility and opposition and oppression. Frequently people will say to me, slavery ended a long time ago. Or the civil rights movement ended discrimination and racism. And when people say that, yes, I say, huh. They, they seem to be saying to me that all the issues with slavery or all the issues with Jim Crow segregation kind of vanish when legislation was passed to end slavery and end Jim Crow. It's a curious thing to say because usually right before they say that, they've just told me that laws don't change heart, only the gospel do. So I'm left wondering, which is it? Did the change of those laws change people's hearts so that racism and oppression and hostility no longer exist? Or did those laws change, but the hearts remain the same because laws can't change hearts? The truth is, beloved, if laws don't change hearts, then laws don't end hostility and opposition. And if laws don't change hearts, then we should expect that hostility and opposition simply continue in different forms. Hostility and opposition change location when laws change, but it didn't change their existence. 
They show up someplace else, usually someplace else in the law. Take, for example, the Civil War and the period that followed it called Reconstruction. Reconstruction was an effort to rebuild the American South and to rebuild it in such a way that freed women and freed men could participate equally in society. It was the most radical experiment in interracial democracy ever seen. It only lasted 12 years, from 1865 to 1877. Pretty early on in Reconstruction, we get the first wave of African-American governors and legislators in the state and the U.S. Uh, US Congress. We get the passage of laws that, that seem to really birth a new day of freedom and equality. But also very early on, as early as 1866, we see the beginning of opposition. In 1866, the southern opponents of freed men and women use a series of laws called black codes to restrict African-American freedom and to slow African-American progress toward equality. Around that time, some groups begin to spring up, like the Ku Klux Klan, who use violence and intimidation against anyone challenging white authority and challenging white supremacy. By the 1870s, support for Reconstruction began to weaken the reforms that had been taking place were being rolled back. Democrats of the period, which are not the Democrats of the day, Southern Democrats took control of the South again and began the nearly 100 years of Jim Crow segregation and racial prejudice in the country. All the rights gained for that brief window following the Civil War were effectively stripped away about a decade or so after the war. Simply ending exile does not end all opposition. That's what we find in Ezra chapter 4. In Ezra 1, Cyrus, king of Persia, passed an edict granting Jews the right to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. In Ezra chapter 2, nearly 50,000 Israelites responding to that new law immigrate back to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the temple and reestablish worship. In Ezra chapter 3, the work on the temple begins, and we see them beginning in the infancy of establishing worship again in Israel. And in Ezra chapter 4, the book zooms in on the opposition that Israel faced as they tried to rebuild their country and rebuild worship. Anytime the people of God prepare to do the work of God, they can expect opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ezra chapter 4, in one sense, is just an illustration of our previous sermon series. It's what spiritual warfare looks like when the people of God begin to do the work of God. In Ezra's day, opposition came in three forms. Number one, religious infiltration. That's what we'll see in verses 1 to 3 religious infiltration. Number two, social and political intimidation. Social and political intimidation, verses four and five. And number three, it came in the form of legal accusation. Legal accusation, verses six to 24. Now, the outline is whenever you face religious infiltration, number one, keep pure. Keep pure. Point number two, whenever you face social and political intimidation, number two, keep enduring. Keep enduring. And then number three, whenever you face legal accusation, keep still. Keep still. Keep pure. Keep enduring. Keep still. Ezra chapter four. Look with me at verses one to three. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esar Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Verse 1 clearly labels the surrounding people adversaries. 
That's just a word that means enemy or opponent. So these are not friends of Israel. These are foes of Israel. And verses 1 and 2 describe for us their first strategy. It's, it's religious infiltration. Notice there, they come to them and they appeal to the leadership, Zerubbabel and all the heads of the houses. And they say, look, let us, let us help you out. Let us build with you the temple that you've come to, to prepare. Sometimes it seems like your enemies only come alive when you're doing something good. They don't bother you when you ain't doing the Lord's work. But when you start doing what the Lord has called you to do, then all of a sudden they get interested, don't they? So they hear about the temple being built. They approach the leaders. They say, hey, look, let us, let us join you as this. Now, it's interesting. They give themselves away in how they talk. Notice what they say. For we worship your God as you do. They don't say we worship our God. We, we worship your God. They, they don't know him personally. They're not in covenant with him. He's a stranger to them. So whatever y'all doing, oh, we can do that too. We want to join you in that, but not as people who know God. But now notice the second way they give themselves away. They, they say, look, we've been doing this since the days of Esar Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, here's, here's the clue. They're not Israelites. They're really exiles too. They were brought into the land by a pagan king, not by the king of kings. Israel arrived in that land by way of promise when God brought them through the Exodus and into the wilderness and settled them in their land. These people here now can't find their names in the genealogy of chapter 2. They're foreigners and aliens. They're strangers and outsiders to the covenant of God, and they give themselves away even in the way they talk. They're trying to infiltrate the people of God so they can then oppose the work of God. Now, beloved, Satan ain't got no new strategies. He keeps using the same old things to hinder the work of the Lord. The New Testament church faces the same kind of, of opposition. It's, a, it's been the enemy's strategy even in the days of the apostles. So if you want to, we do a sword drill now. You keep your finger in Ezra 4, Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes there to the church in Galatia, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see what Paul is saying here. There are some people who slipped in unseen to spy on freedom and take it away. Or 2 Peter 2.1. Peter writes there, but false prophets also arose where? Among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The false teachers are sneaky. They slip in. They come in unawares and and oppose the truth of the gospel, or Jude 3 and 4, where Jude writes there, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about the, our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Then he says this in verse 4, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So fakers, perpetrators, imposters, spies, infiltrators are always seeking to hinder the people of God by sneaking inside the people of God and opposing the work of God. That's what we see in Ezra 4. That's what the apostles face in the New Testament church. And, and that's what we face today. People who would pervert the gospel while pretending to be Christians. But now notice verse 3 gives us Israel's reaction. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you ain't got nothing to do with this. That's what it says in the Hebrew. You ain't got nothing to do with this. We building God's house, leave us alone. The leaders working together didn't fall for the okie-doke. They saw right through the ruse and refused to accept help from the enemies. 
They decided to keep their community and their worship pure as God had commanded them in the word. It's an old saying, keep your enemies close and your friends can't hurt you. I don't know if you've heard that before. I don't quite know what it means, but it didn't seem like you're just nervous watching everybody all the time. But keep your enemies close and your friends can't hurt you. But Zerubbabel seems to have a different saying in mind. Keep your enemies out because they ain't your friends. <laughs> your enemies do not worship your God. And your enemies cannot help you worship your God. Work of God must be done by the people of God. The people of God cannot and should not depend on those who do not know God for the work of God. The people of God cannot and should not trust unbelievers to provide for the worship of God. That falls to us. We alone must do as God's people what God has called us to do. So there's an appropriate kind of self-reliance in this text. That grows out of the recognition of the boundary between God's people and those who are not God's people. This historical event makes a clear and distinct argument for clear lines of church membership. Israel took the role in chapter 2, and then they were then governing themselves in relations to others based upon who was in and outside the covenant community. And so it is with the church. The church is to make clear the distinctions between the people of God and the world. And we negotiate those boundaries and those distinctions, attempting by God's grace to keep the people of God pure, consistent of those who give a credible profession of faith, not an incredible profession like these fakers, and then doing the work of God as people in the new covenant with God and with each other. In other words, church membership helps us to diagnose the adversaries and the friends of God's work. Keeping that in mind is essential for living as exiles in the world. Which brings us to our second point. Again, social and political intimidation keep enduring, keep the faith. When infiltration didn't work, they moved to their second strategy, social and political intimidation. You see that there in verses 4 and 5? Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Again, you've heard the cliche, if you can't beat them, join them. That's Kevin Durant's philosophy. But these adversaries, <laughs> these adversaries, I want to make sure y'all listening. These adversaries put the cliche in reverse, don't they? They seem to think if you can't join them, beat them, Right? The word discouraged carries a sense of harassment and ridicule. They're doing everything they can socially to make the work conditions impossible. They're continually weakening the hands of Israel and slowing the work. The entire aim was to, as it says here, make Israel afraid. And that, that gives us a clue to the real problem with discouragement, doesn't it? The problem with discouragement is not that you feel bad. The problem with discouragement is that it makes you afraid to even try. Fear is the enemy of faith and action. If you can discourage someone enough, then you can take the fight right out of them. You can take initiative and industry and drive and, and effort right out of them via discouragement. And that's what happened with Israel. They they were harassed and discouraged, and they grew afraid to even continue to build a house of God. And at the same time that they socially discouraged them, notice that they, they also began political bribery against them. They offered bribes to their counselors to frustrate the work. You know what a, a bribe is. A bribe is a payment of some sort to get others to, to do something for you. These counselors were probably judges and officials there in the region, appointed by Cyrus, who's a long way away, attending to other matters. And so they bribed these counselors to, to frustrate the exile's purpose. They were, other, in other words, corrupting government and corrupting government officials against Israel. This, this was a kind of systematic injustice and sin. 
And God hates bribery. Deuteronomy 16, 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of, a, of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Proverbs 17, 23. The wicked accepts a bribe in secret to pervert the ways of justice. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Nothing good ever comes from dealing under the table. Nothing good ever comes from bribery. Today, these bribes might look like paying someone to not approve a building permit. Or it could look like exchanging favors with administrators in order to keep churches from using public schools. Or it might be paying someone to keep a project tied up in zoning regulations indefinitely. Any number of forms. But this notice in verse 5, this harassment and intimidation went on throughout the entire rule of King Cyrus down to the reign of Darius. That's 38 years. 38 years. Cyrus had given them permission to rebuild, but as I said, he was busy expanding the empire in other directions. He didn't have time to sort of tend to the local laws here. And, and Cyrus's son did not believe in the same kind of religious and cultural freedom as his father did. So he wasn't in favor. So it took until Darius before the work would resume. 38 years, they faced harassment and intimidation. And the question is, what do you do when you face that? I mentioned the Ku Klux Klan a moment ago. I want to bring them back into our view here. We want to know what a campaign of social and political intimidation looks like. Can consider the history of the Klan. The Klan first began around December 1865 in Pulaski, Tennessee. Six former Confederate officers started the organization as a fraternity initially. And initially that, they did what frat boys do. They had keg parties and hung out. But by 1867, local chapters of the Klan spread throughout the South and committed themselves to white supremacy. At the time, Republicans were the party of freedoms, not the same Republican Party as today. And they were the party that was championing Reconstruction and the inclusion of former slaves into a renewed and reconstructed South. So the Klan opposed black and white Republican leaders who worked for Reconstruction. They began, excuse me, to harass, to discourage, to beat, to murder. They continued that campaign of terror until finally the federal government has to pass laws to suppress the Klan in 1871. But by that time, Reconstruction was already weakening and support for the inclusion of African people as, as freed and equal was already eroding. The Klan rose again in 1915 this time in Stone Mountain, Georgia. The second phase of the Klan was, was inspired by the racist film, Birth of a Nation. And at that time, the Klan got wiser. They began to use business techniques. So they actually hired professional recruiters to go out and recruit members for the Klan. And pretty soon they had chapters in every state in the country. They held mass marches during this time. And this is when they began to burn crosses. They claimed to be a Christian organization. And they opposed Jews, blacks, Catholics, immigrants from Eastern Europe, and anyone else they didn't define as white and Protestant. Then they rose a third time, 1950s and 60s. This time they were organized to oppose the civil rights movement. They made alliances with Southern police departments and political officials like Bull Connor and George Wallace. They harassed and murdered civil rights leaders in 1964. In 1963, they bombed the 16th Street Baptist Church, killing four little girls. It seems that every time progress is made toward freedom, the Klan rises again. Their numbers are small today, 
but they're still around, and they have children and grandchildren. White supremacist groups that have distanced themselves from the stereotype of backward Klansmen adopting khaki pants and button-down shirts and close-cropped haircuts marching with tiki torches. In Charlottesville, shooting Christians at prayer in South Carolina or Muslims at mosque in New Zealand or Jews at synagogue in the Northeast. Their aim, pure and simple, is as old as Ezra 4, verse 4 and 5, to frustrate progress of anyone not like them. They use social and political intimidation. And the question becomes, how do you respond to such harassment and opposition? Ezra 4 doesn't tell us anything about how the Israelites responded to this nearly four-decade campaign of intimidation. We, we see the effects on them, though. Verse 5, they were afraid to build. We know we should not shrink back from God's work because we're afraid. In fact, as we saw in chapter chapter. One, chapter two, chapter three, we should worship God because we're afraid. That's a motivation that should drive us to the Lord, but we shouldn't stop the work of the Lord because we're afraid. And that's why I think the text implies that the proper response to social and political intimidation is keeping the faith and enduring in the work of God. 38 years later, Israel is still there in the land. Temple's not built, but they're still there. In our day, the, the church must keep the faith too. We must be prepared to endure. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12 says, when persecuted, we endure. That must be the motto of the people of God. When we're harassed and harmed by the world, the flesh, and the devil, we must expect persecution, social and political intimidation, and we must expect it to come sometimes furiously. And sometimes it lasts a, a long period of time, just as it did with Ezra here, just as it did with a hundred years of Jim Crow. But God's people must press right through it. Continue in the faith. One of the freedom songs of the civil rights movement was, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Y'all know that song. I won't sing it, but I'll read the lyrics. Ain't, no, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around turn me around. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. I'm gonna keep on walking, keep on talking, marching into freedom land. That's the spirit of God's people in the face of opposition. We endure. And as we endure, beloved, I want to encourage you, something more is going on than just our endurance. So in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, this is what Paul says there about endurance. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's an interesting perspective, isn't it? We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. So now the funny thing about endurance is this. God will use suffering to teach us how to do it. Isn't it funny? Because we want to know how to endure without the suffering, don't we? That's his means ordinarily. Suffering produces endurance. And notice, and endurance produces character. We also want character without pain, don't we? But God teaches us some things in our pain that, that we don't learn very easily in our happiness. And so endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What this means is God has purposes in our pain, in our persecution, in our suffering. He is teaching us to endure. He's teaching us to be more like Jesus. He's pouring in our hearts in the midst of our pain his love by his Spirit. So sometimes if you want to know that God loves you, you actually look at your suffering, not away from it. Suffering and opposition is not an indication that God has abandoned his people. It is often an indication that God is at work in his people. And that same endurance also comes with a reward. Consider Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
Or consider 2 Timothy 2.12, which says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Endurance earns you a part in Christ's eternal reign and kingdom. He's storing up rewards for those who continue in the face of opposition. And so as we do see in Colossians 1 verse 11, we ought to pray for each other that we might endure with joy. And we ought to gather together, as Hebrews 10 says, so that we might encourage each other to continue while it's day. And so the question becomes, beloved, how are you and I at enduring in the face of opposition? Are you an oak tree or a puny vine? Are you easily trampled? You stand erect against the wind. And do we have any brothers or sisters in our lives who who help us to endure? We certainly have enemies working to discourage us. So it would be wise of us to have brothers and sisters we lock arms with who help us endure, who are in inoculation against discouragement. Do we have anybody in our lives playing that role? Let's, Let's do that for one another. Because our adversary is real, our persecution is real, our suffering is real, our friendship ought to be real too. Our encouraging of each other ought to be real too. So, when you face social and political intimidation, endure. Number three, against legal accusation, be still. Be still. This I want to suggest to you is the the point of verses 6 to 24. Verse 6 tells us, In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, Ahasuerus, in verse 6, is commonly thought to be another name for King Xerxes I. So now what's happening in verses 6 to 23 is a kind of flash forward. The writer has moved the story down in history a number of years. And so we're, we're seeing how this persecution got escalated to legal accusation. Xerxes ruled between 485 and 465 B.C. This is the same Ahasuerus or Xerxes who ruled in the days of Queen Esther, in the book of Esther. And it may be the case that the accusation that we're reading about here sets the social and political context for the plot of Haman, against Israel in the book of Esther. You remember Haman didn't like Mordecai, and so Haman, who had received some favor with the king, decided to convince the king to, to appoint a day on the calendar when all the people through the territories would gather all the Jewish people and put them to death on one day. It was a plan for genocide. You need a picture of what that would look like. Think back to the Rwandan genocide. So that's what's going on in Esther, and God used Mordecai and Queen Esther to intercede for his people and to save his people from that plot to exterminate them. And so now there's been a change in rulers in verse 6, and with that change in rulers, the the enemies see an opportunity. In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation. Look with me at the letter that they wrote in verses 7 down to 16, I think it is. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander, and Shimsai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges and the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Let me stop there just for a moment. This just reads like a class action lawsuit, doesn't it? It's like everybody and their mama writing to you right now, Right? And then we get a clue as to who the adversaries are in verse 1. They're the Samaritans, that people who were brought into the land in the northern kingdom, who corrupted worship in Israel, who worshiped false gods and blended that with Israelite worship. And this conflict between the Samaritans and Jewish people, as you know, would, would, would go on all the way down to the days of Jesus. 
right? So these are Samaritans who are writing this letter and harassing them, trying to stop the work. And verse 11 says, this is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes the king. Your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finish, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. Sneaky rascals. Consider the slippery strategy that this letter reveals. First of all, they they appeal with a sense of conspiracy. Be it known to the king. Be it known to the king. Be it known to the king. There's there's something happening that that you might not be aware of, and and we, your friends, well, we just want to make you aware. Accusation often has the ring of conspiracy theory. It's always the indication that there's some plot, there's something evil going on beneath the surface. And we know, we're, we're hip, we're wise, and, and we just want to hip you in power to this conspiracy. Then they appeal with a little bit of selective history, don't they? This rebellious city, this wicked city. Well, indeed, if he were to go back and read the history of Jerusalem, he would find that at once there were some powerful kings there like David. And at once that city and that that people and that country did indeed defend themselves and resist the, the onslaught of other powers. So they're just directing his attention to those selective parts of history in the record that look unfavorable to Israel. But they don't say if you look in the record, you'll see a law from Cyrus that gave them permission to rebuild, do they? They're crafting and selective. Often the accusation comes with a selective use of facts, not the whole story. And then notice how they appeal to self-interest. Verse 13, you let them rebuild and it's going to hurt your pocket. You ain't going to get no taxes. You ain't going to get any of the revenue that's supposed to come to you. Verse 16, you, you let them build and you won't have any territory beyond the river there in Samaria and Israel and so on. You're going to lose your land. You're going to lose your territory. And you're going to have this troublesome people right in the middle of your empire. These are skilled folks at accusation. They understand that the best accusations are a combination of, number one, presenting yourself as if you're on the listener's side. Number two, making the other guys look like they're part of an evil conspiracy, which is basically fear-mongering. And number three, appealing to someone's self-interest. If you can look like the good guy, make the other guy look evil, and convince your listener that you're on their side and they ought to be with you, you've got a fair chance of distorting the perspective and the association of the people who listen to you. Social media is put to good use in this way quite a lot. Don't be surprised if your opponents front like the good guys. (laughs) And don't be surprised if they cherry pick your history. And don't be surprised if they use feigned self-interest of others to, to stop the work God gives you to do. It's an old classic formula and it works. And look at the king's response in verses 17 to 22. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe. You know, they were all happy the king called him by name, right? And the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree 
and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? The king basically writes back and says, I'm going to pass an immediate injunction against any further building. Because that stuff you told me about, I checked the records, it's true. Now he's thinking it's also complete, but it's not, is it? No, it's true, I checked the records. And so why should now I be hurt because of these folks who are fomenting rebellion? And so the king takes a decisive action on partial information in support of himself and not the righteous. This is why we want righteous leaders in power. They would think first about the people they serve rather than first about being served. Here's the problem with being in exile, even when you're in your own land. You have no legal recourse for making sure you're treated fairly. You exist inside a legal system, as Israel did inside of the Persian Empire, that can a moment, at a moment grant you rights or take them away based on little more than accusation and whim. I'll give you another historical example. In 1865, General Sherman, on his march to the sea, met in Savannah, Georgia, with about 20 African-American clergymen, another general from Massachusetts, and the Secretary of War at the time, along with a number of Union soldiers. And Sherman issued field order number 15. That order commanded the confiscation of 400,000 acres of land in Georgia, South Carolina, and Florida. That land was confiscated and was to be offered to the 10 million now instantly freed former slaves. They were able to request up to 40 acres, and that would have been part of the um, sort of resettlement and part of the reparations to slaves living at that time to give them a footing in a society because Lincoln had freed the slaves into a moneyed economy without a red cent. Sherman passes that order. This is where we get the popular notion of 40 acres and a mule, if you know that. But Andrew Johnson came to power after Lincoln was assassinated. And, and almost days after Lincoln was assassinated, Andrew Johnson reverses field order number 15. He issued a proclamation that returned to land, returned that land to the, the slave owners, the plantation owners, if they would only swear a loaf of oil, loyalty to the union. So by that means, that legal proceeding, that presidential proclamation, what had been given as an act of restitution and justice was just as easily taken away as an act of political expediency on behalf of the union and the presidency. The courts would continually be used to take away rights once granted. In a way, the courts for the next hundred years were simply playing out with the Supreme Court. One writer had said in the Supreme Court in the case of Dred Scott, quote, the black man has no rights that a white man was bound to respect. When that's in your law, you can be pretty sure it's already in your society. And when it's in your law, you can be pretty sure it will continue to shape society. The person in exile finds him or herself in a context without legal recourse. So in Ezra 4, when a ruling comes down in response to their enemies' petitions, there was little that could be done inside that legal framework. And through that accusation, the work of God was put to a halt. halt. Verse 23, Rehum and Shemshah, real happy, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. So work stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, for around 20 years or so. 
The temple and the walls just sat there incomplete on the basis of an unrighteous legal accusation. The Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He specializes in accusation. So false accusation is about as demonic a form of opposition as the people of God will face in the work of God. But we need to be clear in our day where false accusation runs so freely. False accusation is not simply a matter of words or name calling that can never hurt you. False accusation is often the stick and the stone that breaks the bone. It leads to things that are devastating. In Esther's day, again, it led to the the plan to exterminate all Jewish people. In in, in the days of of slavery, the false accusation about the inferiority of black folk led led the society to, to enslave, to lynch, to rape, to murder, to dehumanize. The false accusations against Dr. King as a a socialist and, and those kinds of things got him assassinated. This is serious spiritual warfare. Never treat false accusation lightly. Never listen to those who make false accusations against the church or others. And insofar as you are able, never act on a false accusation. So far as you are aware, never view false accusation, accusation as entertainment. Clickbait is dangerous. Have a zero tolerance policy because false accusations destroy lives and can hinder the work of God. And when we come to the end of Ezra chapter 4, the work stops because some people wrote a false report to a king who acted on that false report. The work on the temple stops in Ezra's day, but it will be rebuilt. But even after it's rebuilt, centuries later, it will be destroyed again. Today, a mosque sits on the site of the former temple. Today, Israel is still surrounded by her enemies who harass her. And the question is, when you come to Ezra chapter 4, if we were just stopping in the story here, the question might be, did God's work fail? Sometimes, beloved, as we are living this story of faith, it can feel like God's work is incomplete and on the verge of failure. But God's work never fails. All along, God not only promised that Ezra's generation, Nehemiah's generation, would finish the temple. All along, God had in mind building an entirely different kind of temple. He wasn't interested finally in a temple made with stones and a temple made with gold. He was interested finally in a temple made of living stones. So Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, as you come to him, that is, as you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, a living stone, Jesus, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, what happens to you as you come to him? Peter says in verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. God is still building his temple. It's just not in Jerusalem. It's all over the world. God is still building his temple. But it doesn't depend on laws passed by kings and, uh, and, and the, the, the sort of accommodation of surrounding nations. God is building his people, his temple, out of his people. Peter's not the only one who sees this. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the structure, the whole structure, those now, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's who you are, church. Living stones assembled together by our saving God in whom he lives 
by his spirit. So Paul could just say to the Corinthians when they were tripping, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, he says it twice. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? We're not looking for the rebuilding of a stone temple in Jerusalem or any place else. We're not to think that Ezra 4 no longer applies because we're not building walls and things of that sort. No, Ezra 4 is a commercial to that eternal work that Christ would do, that ongoing work that Christ would do when he promised in Matthew's gospel that he would build his church. And in that promise to build this church, he is also building us as a temple in whom he lives. So as long as the gospel goes forward and as long as people come to Jesus, the work of building the temple is going on. The work of stacking us together as living stones is being completed. When the Lord saved you, he was building his temple. When he saved your neighbor or your spouse or when he saved your child as we prayed, he's building his temple. Living stones becoming a habitation for God. And this is the amazing thing, beloved. He lives in us. He lives in you, Christian. He lives in this church by his spirit. He dwells forever in us, not just with us. And that happened the moment that you repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ and accepted that when he was crucified, he died in your place. And when he was raised, he was raised for your victory over death and hell and judgment. The moment you believed, Jesus moved in by his spirit. Never to leave, never to break the lease, never to tear down the temple again, but to keep us until we're with him finally and forever. And if you're here this morning, you're not yet a Christian. That's the same promise the Bible gives to you. And if you come to Jesus, confessing your sin, turning away from your sin, and if you put your faith in Jesus as the Son of God who died on the cross to, to pay the penalty for your sin, and if you confess that you believe that he was raised from the grave three days later so that you might be declared righteous with God and have eternal life with God, the promise is God will make you new. And God will add you to his temple. And God will live in you. In fact, the spirit who lives in you, Ephesians says, is the guarantee until the day that you are finally and completely redeemed. You'll never be lost again. You'll never be without God again. He will keep you just as he kept Israel and just as he keeps his church. No matter what happens with kings and laws and social and political intimidation, he will keep you and you will endure until the end. He's worth you trusting him. Believe on Jesus and be saved. Church, let's continue the work of building and spreading the gospel of making Jesus known, of bearing witness to his righteousness and his justice, his mercy, his goodness, and his peace, no matter what opposition we face. Let's endure until the end. We're going to reign with him. Let's pray together.